Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. John chapter 5, I'm reading 18 verses of Scripture. It's a lengthy reading, but it's a story, and I don't want to just read half the story. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why, and this was why, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Father, this is your word already anointed, alive, transforming, powerful. Let it penetrate our hearts this morning. Grant us wisdom and direction and enlightenment. Lord, help us to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this text this morning. Anoint us to receive, to hear, touch our hearts, our hands, and our head. Lord, that we may be transformed and walk out of here a little different than we came, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Any story that reveals to us the nature and character of Jesus is a great story. Any story that we can learn about Jesus and learn from Jesus and learn how to be more like Jesus is a great story. And this is one of those stories. This is not a fairy tale. Uh, this really happened. As believers, we believe that these stories in Scripture are stories that actually happened. Uh, they're not myths. They're not fairy tales. This is a historic record of something that happened 2,000 years ago. If we read a story about a great figure in history who did good, that character however, is dead and has been dead for a long time. We can read stories of heroes, of valiant men and women 
over the centuries and we say that was then but they're dead, they're in the grave, they're long gone. In this story, the main character of the story is still alive today. It's what we believe about the resurrection of Jesus, that He did come back from life. He was dead. He was raised again. And today He is alive. He is the God-man who is seated at the right hand of God. This is a figurative statement about uh, who Jesus is, His equality with God and His identity as God. Uh, and so he sits at the right hand of the Father. This is Mark 16, 1 Peter 3. And uh, people often ask, what is Jesus doing today? And so we know what he's doing today. He's making intercession for the saints. This is what the scripture tells us Jesus is doing. And Peter tells us that he is with the angels and authorities and powers all being subjected to Jesus Christ today. The Spirit of Christ is what we, what the Bible calls the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is here among us this morning. Uh, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. And this is what the identity or the definition of a church is, is that where two or three people gather together. Uh, if it's one person, you're having communion with God. If it's more than one person... Uh, then gather together in His name where the Holy Spirit is there. Uh, that is a church. So in this story, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And Jesus could have went anywhere He wanted to go in Jerusalem, but, but He intentionally goes where the sick and the broken and the hurting people are. Uh, it's noteworthy to see that a chapter before in John 4, that uh, it's what we preached about three weeks ago, the woman at the well. Jesus intentionally goes out of His way to seek out a woman who ticked every box of every category uh, that was an outcast or a lower person in society. And He intentionally goes out of His way uh, to meet her alone at a well to share with her the good news of who He is. And now again, one chapter later, here Jesus is and He's in Jerusalem. He could have went and rubbed shoulders with a lot of important and influential people, but He doesn't. He goes where He knows there are sick and broken and hurting people. And it makes sense because Jesus said, I have come to seek and save that which is lost. And people always want to be more like Jesus. Well, maybe one of the ways that we could be more like Jesus is to spend time with hurting and broken people. Because that's what Jesus did. So if we look at verses 6 through 9, we see in verse 6 that Jesus already knows this man's history. And He knows our history. He knows everything about us. He knows where we have been. He knows where you are going. He knows where you're coming from in life. And none of these things are a problem with God. Jesus knows that this man has been an invalid probably unable to walk for 38 years, possibly his entire life. Or maybe he was injured as a young man and now for the past 38 years, maybe he's older than this. We don't know, but we know this condition has been for 38 years and Jesus is aware of this. And when Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? The man obviously does not know who's asking him this question. And why would he? This, he doesn't know who Jesus is. Social media, television, none of that exists. There's no way to broadcast his picture. Uh, it's crowded. There's probably hundreds of people in this area. And here comes this random stranger and walks up to this man who, don't, don't be too hard on this man the way that he asked, answered Jesus because he doesn't know who Jesus is. He's a random guy and he's been at this stage for 38 years. Why would this man think that today is any different? So when Jesus asks him, 
Will you be made whole? Do you want to be healed? The man doesn't know who's asking the question, so he doesn't answer the question. He gives reasons why it's not possible to be healed. I don't have a man to take me to the pool where the waters are troubled. Now, what does it mean for the waters to be troubled? Well, we really don't know. Um, in, in the reading this morning, we're reading from a modern translation of Scripture, and so it leaves out a verse that is in the King James Version. In the King James Version, there is a verse 4 that doesn't exist here or in any other modern translation. And I think for good reason uh, that it's left out. Uh, it is generally accepted today. I haven't read anyone who argues this point uh, that in the King James Version, verse 4 was probably inserted later by scribes and translators as an explanation, a possible explanation for what is happening in verse 7. So in the King James, it says that an angel would come down and trouble the waters. Uh, and I'm not going to go into, that could be a rabbit trail, I'm not going to go into uh, why they leave this out and why they don't think that this is... Uh, the case. There are people who have full-time jobs. They're called textual critics and they do nothing but try to figure these things out. And they are employed to do this very thing and this is the, what they've come up with. And I said all that to say this. If we look at the text as it was likely originally written, we don't know what it means for the waters to be troubled. Uh, one possible explanation is that they do know where this place is. They uncovered this spot in the 1800s. They were digging out Jerusalem and nobody ever knew where this was at till a couple hundred years ago and they uncovered a description, a place that matches the description to a T and they said this is probably where John 5 happens. And the waters that are there are kind of spring fed but they're also the uh, have a lot of minerals and, and iron in them from uh, springs underneath that kind of bubble up sometimes. And, and we know even yet today that people sometimes think those waters are therapeutic. And those people then likely thought that as well. If I could just get to that water and be healed. What's probably not the case is that there was some supernatural or uh, magical is not the right word. It's not likely that people would just go down there and get in the water and, and be healed. There's no indication of that. Uh, but there were people who tried to get to the water. When you're desperate, you will try anything. And the problem is the guy can't walk. So when the waters are troubled, whatever that means, people would step over him. People who could walk, who had other ailments, would step over him, trample him to get to the water. So for 38 years, he's laid there. So this is the reason he gives Jesus why he can't be healed. Although Jesus didn't ask him for reasons. Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? The man says, well, I don't have anybody to carry me to the, to the pool. He cannot envision a life that is any different than the life he is living right now. He is allowing his past to define his future. So there, there's three things that I want to point out on this. Number one, he's allowing his past to define his future. Number two, he does not have spiritual eyes to see who Jesus really is. And number three, he doesn't show any evidence of faith and yet Jesus still grants him a miracle. Now that's his state, but sometimes that's ours. We can allow our past to determine what the future is going to look like. Well, it's always been like this, so it probably always is going to be like that. And we don't see what is possible because of Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you this morning that because of Jesus, whatever your past looks like, not going to say it's not going to have influences, but it does not have to dictate what your future looks like. 
through Jesus Christ, your future can look very different. There is an art of possibility that exists because of Jesus Christ for your future. Number two, he doesn't have spiritual eyes to see who Jesus really is. But why should he? There's nothing there that's given to say, hey, this is the Son of God. This, this is God in flesh. No, he just sees him as an ordinary man. But often we too do not always recognize who Jesus really is, the identity of Jesus Christ. And if we see him, if God allows us to open our eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, it will transform our lives. Number three, he doesn't show any evidence of faith. I mean, there's, there's no faith. He gets, we say, well, you have to have faith to have your miracle. Here's an instance where he doesn't. There's nothing there that indicates that he had any faith at all. He doesn't know who this man is, and yet Jesus still, through his grace and mercy, grants him a miracle. He stepped in. Christ made the difference. He bridges the gap. And if we're honest, he has done that for each and every single one of us. He has made the difference in our lives. Jesus has moved with compassion on our behalf. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, sorrowful and yet full of joy. And when you know Jesus, when God reveals to you who Jesus really is, your Savior, your healer, your provider, your everything, it will change every area of your life. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows the thoughts in your head right now. Every thought, every feeling, emotion, desire. He knows your successes, your failures, your secret sins. He knows you better than you know yourself. You can put up false pretenses to everybody else in the world. And all of us at some, time, at some point, we've done that and we will probably do that again. It's how, we, it's how we interact with the world. We put up pretenses. We put out a version of ourselves that we want the world to see, to like us, to accept us, to approve of us. But it doesn't work that way with Jesus. He knows who you really are. You, he, all of that he sees right through and he says, this is the real person. And we know something about the nature of God because of how he reacts to knowing all these things about you. We all know that we have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And yet God still loves us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The love of the world that He gave was love to a very broken and damaged and shameful world. And He knew that. And yet He still gave. He knows this lame man and He loves this lame man. He loved him so much that He does not leave him in that condition. So in verse 8, Jesus says to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. Very direct statement. It's not, he just puts it there. Get up, pick up your bed. It's probably some kind of straw mat, something simple that he's laying on. Uh, but it's, it was just, it's like a blanket. It calls it his bed. It's probably something really simple that gives a little bit of a buffer between him and the, the rock ground that he's laying on. And Jesus says, get up, get your bed out of here and go. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. When Jesus speaks the word, the man is healed. No fanfare, no fluff, no nightclub lights and screaming, just the word of God proceeding from the mouth of Christ. That's enough. That's all you need. Now, when we went through John 4, I'm kind of trying to take a sermon from each chapter through John. I took two sermons through chapter 1, I think 2, and chapter 3. But as a rule, I'm probably hitting 
one or two sermons. And so I did not get to a story in John 4. We didn't even touch that story in the last part of John 4. But there is a story in John 4 where there is this government official who lives in a town called Capernaum and he hears about Jesus. And so he travels about 15 miles to where Jesus is and he comes because his son is dying and he'll do anything for his son to be healed. Now 15 miles to us today Certainly people here who traveled more than 15 miles to get here this morning, you'll travel 15 miles plus to get back. But 15 miles 2,000 years ago was a major journey. There were a lot of people who lived their entire life and never went further than 15 miles in their entire life. A lot of people never left their village. It took a lot to travel that kind of distance. We look at Jesus and Jesus never left that general area. I mean, he travels throughout Palestine, but it's not like he travels the world. The Apostle Paul getting on a boat and traveling the world, that, that's a big thing back then that nobody, very few people did. So for this man to travel 15 miles just to find a man he heard about, Anybody who's a father will attest to that. It's like, yes, I would do that for my son. Uh, if I had to walk a mile a day and take 15 days, if I thought somebody was there that could heal my dying son, I would do that. And so when he gets there, he asks Jesus, Jesus, will you make the trip back to me, back with me to Capernaum before my son dies? And Jesus says to him, and here again, it's the word of God proceeding out of the mouth of Christ. Go back home, your son will live. John 4, it's just his exact words. Go back home, your son will live. So the man accepts him at his word. He travels back home. And as he's on his way home, the servants, his servants meet him and they tell him his son is recovering. And the man asks, when did he start to get better? And they said, yesterday at about the seventh hour, his fever lifted. And the father thought about it and he said, yes, that was the time yesterday that Jesus said, go home, your son will live. Jesus speaks the word, and all it takes is the word of God. You don't even have to be close. This is why prayer works. This is why we can pray for people on the other side of the world. Because we pray, and we pray to Him, and His throne acts as this, this satellite that deflects the prayer. It mixes our prayer with His power and glory, and He bends that back down and pushes it to the other side of the world. We send the prayers to heaven. He mixes it and sends it back down, and it works just like that with no delay. That is the power of the Word of God. And then the Bible says, as a note, and he believed, he being that government official, and all of his household, when Jesus speaks, things happen. If Jesus says it will be so, it will be so. In verse 9, though Jesus is not content with the physical healing of this man. So in verse 14, he finds the man. We don't know how much time elapsed between the healing and Jesus going into the temple. But he finds this man, he seeks him out, and he says, See, you are well. <clears throat> Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now I, I take this worse to be the eternal judgment and consequence on, of sin, not of another physical disability. The man was lame for 38 years. He had pretty much suffered at the height of physical disability. But don't sin anymore, let something worse. The worse I take to be the consequences of sin. And so the man went away, verse 15, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he did these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. 
in verse 18, Jesus is equal with God. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. This is the first time in the book of John that Jesus is met with hostility. You would think that a man that is going about doing nothing but good would be golden, untouchable. But the Jews are so wrapped up. And when I say Jews, I'm speaking to the leadership of the religious community, not all Jews. Uh, we're talking about, and even Scripture, when Scripture talks about the Jews in this context, it's talking about the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The Jews were so wrapped up in the Old Testament law that they missed who the law was pointing to the Messiah, the person of Jesus. He did this on the Sabbath. How dare you, Jesus, heal somebody on the Sabbath? Don't you know you're breaking the law of God? But Jesus doesn't take a day off for anybody. So the law prohibited working on the Sabbath, but we know that it, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. But what is work? How do you define work? So the Jews had become radical in their definition of work, and they tried to define it with such precision that the Jewish leaders over time had created 39 different categories of what work was. And one of the definitions of work was picking up something and carrying it from one place to another. That was what they defined as work. I think we understand the Old Testament work was referring to what you did as a vocation. What do you do for a living? Take that day off and give it to the Lord. But they had become so fanatical about this, that they created categories in the law. So there are 39 categories, and one of them is you pick this object from point A and you take it to point B, and now you've broken the law of God. And this man was not breaking law according to Scripture, but he was breaking the law according to the tradition of the elders. The idea was to protect the day from being another day consumed with busyness and work, but they lost the meaning of the Sabbath. And Jesus came to restore the true meaning of the Sabbath. The rest on the Sabbath points us to the ultimate rest in Jesus Christ. Jesus is sovereign. He is powerful to heal every sickness and every disease. And we believe that. We believe in miracles. Christ can del deliver. He can heal any sickness and any disease. And yet, if we're honest about this, the majority of illnesses and cancers and sicknesses do not get healed. We are living in a fallen and broken world. And one of the major themes in the Bible is that God is redeeming this world and He is going to bring healing and restoration to this world when He returns a second time. That is the hope and the comfort of every believer. Things will not always be as they are today. Whatever physical ailment that you're dealing with, it will be healed. That is a guarantee. Everybody's going to be healed either in this life or in the age to come, but everybody will receive their healing. And what I want us to see this morning is the story that God does still heal people physically, but that the physical healing is not the ultimate display of God's power, and it is not the ultimate miracle in your life. Because it's the second part that Jesus does. The go and sin no more. That is the ultimate purpose of Christ, to make men and women holy. Not sinning by itself, just the absence of sin, will not make you holy. You can't save yourself just by not sinning. I know lots of good, moral, pure, clean people, 
uh, who live life and have no mind toward God. They just, they're, they're good upstanding citizens. They're, they have morality. They, have, uh, they live life between the right rails. That alone does not save them. You can't save yourself. You are only holy because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. It is your identity being consumed by the identity of Christ. Paul says it is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me. And most people's biggest problem, including myself, is that we just can't get out of our own way. It's like, it's too much me. John the Baptist cries out, I must decrease, but he must increase. I must die, but he must live within me. So just as Jesus could heal every person today, say, well, why doesn't Jesus heal every person today? Well, why didn't Jesus heal every person at the pool of Bethesda? There were hundreds of, likely hundreds of people laying around there sick and maimed. This is where they were at. There were no homes and hospitals for these people. Uh, there were likely also lots of caregivers there uh, in this place. So Jesus didn't heal everybody. He actually only heals one person. And why he singles that person out, only God knows. But he heals one person among all those people. He singled out one man. And if you struggle with this idea about God, about the idea of sin and suffering, like the, the, the problem of suffering in the world and how that relates to God, um, you're in good company. I regard it as the hardest question that there is to which the Bible doesn't really address. Um, I have my own ideas. I would not share them with you because I'm not here to share my ideas. I have nothing of little value to say. God has things to say in His Word. So I've thought a lot about this. There have been a lot of volumes of books written about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. Where did evil come from? Why do people so? Why is there suffering even in the world? Yes, sin, but where did sin, where, what is the origin of evil that causes all of this? And then why do people today, why do some people get their healing? I, I know personally one person that I knew personally that God raised from the dead. Bonafide, verified medical miracle that God raised this woman from the dead. She was not a believer. Her son, who was not a believer, uh, held on to the bed, begged God to bring her back to life. The doctors came in. The doctor said, Sir, and I knew the son. I knew the son better than I did the mother. They said, Sir, if, if she were to come back to life, she's been dead so long that if she came back to life, she'd be brain dead. Uh, there wouldn't be anything there. The oxygen has been cut off too long. And yet he holds on, he begs God, heal, heal her, heal her. Bring her back to life. And God did. God brought that woman back to life. I saw her visit our church, I think, once after that, maybe twice. To my knowledge, and since then she's passed away again, and this time it's stuck. Um, it's, uh, I don't, to my knowledge, she never came to faith. Her husband, he died a couple years ago. I don't think her son ever, you know. So why does God choose to do that miracle? And yet, people that I know who have been, t who are God-fearing Christ followers, disciples of Jesus, spirit-filled, exit out of this life at an age that we would say is too young, but God didn't bring that person to life. Why is all of that? Where did evil come from? Why do people suffer?
If you ask those questions, and I think those are fair questions to, to ask, you're not alone and you're not original in your question. Because this is what Paul says. Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he then has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I think a good indication of why God does what he does, and this is something that the scriptures are saturated with, is he does it for his own glory. His, he is self-exalting. God is the only one in the universe who has the right to exalt himself. My name will not be profaned. I will not give my glory to another. Over and over and over, for my own sake, for my own sake will I do it. Uh, Psalm 23, uh, for my name's sake. Everything there, he does it so that he might be proclaimed. But here, Paul's giving the explanation of why God does what he does is because God can do what He does. He's God. You will then say to me, Paul says, why does He still find fault? Or who can resist His will? And then Paul answers this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make His power known, has endured with so much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of His glory, here it is again, He does all of this to make the riches of His glory known for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. I'm not going to take the time to unpack all this. There have been as many words spilled on paper through ink the last 2,000 years on this chapter as any other chapter that I know in the Bible. And I won't even begin to add anything to what has already been said. But Paul is saying some really hard things. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God, to the potter, what he decides to do with the clay? There's three things that I want you to keep to know. If, if you don't get anything else this morning, three things to know about God. Number one is that God is sovereign. He does as He pleases. He doesn't need my permission. He is sovereign and He is in control. Number two is that God is holy. He is light. He is without sin. He is without evil. He is without error in ways that we cannot comprehend. This is why when I say we're supposed to be holy, you're holy as an identity of participating with Christ in Christ because of the gospel, not because of what you do. Only God alone is holy by His own nature. I am holy because I have His identity. I am participating in the identity of God. Number three, God is love. But when we have to take all these things on balance, that God is sovereign, He's holy, and He's loving, 
I cannot begin to comprehend what that looks like and what that means when he deals with millions and billions of people. This is a hard verse that I read this morning out of Romans. But I would encourage you to lay down your presuppositions and believe what's in the text. You are here today. You have been shown grace by the almighty hand of God. You are somebody who has been extended mercy by the hand of God. You are a vessel that has been extended mercy. You are here today, if you're even sitting here hearing the Word of God, where there are millions of people today who will not hear anything from the voice of God, you have been shown mercy. You have an encounter with His Word and His grace and with His truth and with His Spirit. And we all together are of all people blessed to have that. The potter has brought you here into this place to mold you and to make you into what He wants you to be. And just as Jesus focused on one man at the sheep gate, so He focuses on us here today. He is here today to heal our life, to make us whole, to drive sin far from us, and to fill us with the power of His Spirit. He is here today to change our lives forever. The first coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago introduced the world to His power and His ability to heal and save, but the second coming of Christ that is yet to come will make all of that a reality to all those people who are in Christ. Have you ever sampled? I know I've done this. I tried to think of examples. I couldn't think of any specific example, but I knew this had happened to me in life. Um, the closest I could think of it was, I think, one time in a Sam's Club. I don't remember what they were gave me, but they were sampling things. And I remember taking whatever it was and eating that and thinking, I want more of that. Like you want to start making multiple passes and put on disguises because it's like, I don't know what that is, but I want like I want a meal of that. I don't want to just sample it. I want an entire meal of that. But there's no more left. It was just a sample. This was what it's like to live in this life as a follower of Christ. We, we taste we taste just a little bit here and there and we say, oh, that's so good, I want so much more of that, but I have to deal and contend with all the sufferings of this world. But there is a day coming when you will have the fullness of what it means to be in Christ. The Bible says, I think it's the Apostle Paul, he writes and he talks about the Holy Spirit that is given to us being a seal that holds us until the day of our redemption. And he calls it the earnest of our inheritance. And that word earnest is the same idea that we get when we, uh, when we buy a house and you put down, they call it earnest money. And I had a friend of mine a few years ago that made quite a bit of money by selling the same house three or four times and people putting down earnest money and then they couldn't actually follow through with it. And they tried to get the money back. He said, no, 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 that's, that's my money. That's why it's called earnest money. It's, it's my money, but it's just, it's just a portion. Tammy and I bought a house in Illinois 20 years ago and I remember driving to a Dairy Queen to write a man a check for 1% of the house's value because I wasn't going through a realtor so we had to, uh, and he wanted earnest money. So I gave him a 1% down payment uh, on that house. and. It was his money after that because it showed that I was earnest. That's why it's called earnest money. It shows that I am for real. I am earnest about this. But it's just a fraction, just a fraction of what you're putting down. Paul says the Holy Spirit that we have now is the earnest of our inheritance. It's just a small portion. You say it's not 1%. It's a fraction of a fraction of a percent.
Uh, we, we just get a taste here of what it means to have infinite glory and infinite fellowship with Christ in the age to come. The psalmist said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we do taste. That's what we do now. And yet we are left with a longing for so much more. This is why the people of God in this life, you will deal with the hardships of life. You will deal with frustrations and physical problems and financial problems and relational problems. You will deal with all of that in this life because you are just tasting the earnest of what has been given to you. But there is so much more that is to come. The hope for the people of God who are in Christ is that there is more of this. You are not living your best life now. You are living the best possible version of life that you could right now, um, being in Christ. But your best life is yet to come. That is the promise and that is the hope. So this morning, just as Jesus walks into an area filled with... I've tried to picture this, what this must have looked like. Uh, The smell had to be overwhelming. The stench in that area... Uh, the unsanitary conditions uh, that, that people dealt with. Uh, this, was, this was not just some ward in some hospital. This is a bad situation. Yet Jesus walks in the midst of this and he finds one person that he decides to show mercy on. He shows mercy to that person and he heals them. But he doesn't stop there. He goes back into the temple and he says, Now go and sin no more. Live a clean life. Live a pure life. This is what Christ does for all of us. He finds us. He heals us physically, maybe. But one thing that I know is that the physical healing is not always guaranteed. Some of the, some of the most faithful, and I really push back against this. I get, I don't know if angry is the right word. I like to say it's righteous indignation. It's probably not so righteous. I think it just makes me mad. When I see hear preachers talk about, well, that person didn't get healed because they didn't have enough faith. Like You're absurd to say something like that. Some of the most faithful, God-fearing people that I know have walked through life with some horrendous ailments, sicknesses, sufferings, diseases. Can God heal them? Yes. Should we pray for them that they be healed? Should we lay hands on them and pray for the sick, anointing them with oil as the Bible commands? Yes. Should we believe for their healing? Yes. But it is God who decides if He heals. And I have seen enough in 27 years of ministry to know I don't, there's no correlation to me on why God heals this person and doesn't heal that person. I don't know. I'm not God. I don't stand in God's place. I defer to Romans 9 and say he's the potter, we're the clay. He can do whatever he wants to do and he doesn't owe us any explanation. There's going to be a lot of things in this life that are unknown. But whether he heals me or doesn't heal me in this life, the one healing that is guaranteed and it is the greatest miracle and that is the miracle of transformation of heart and mind and spirit that comes through a person who trusts in him, who submits to him, who is filled with His Spirit and allows the Spirit to just absolutely transform their lives because they are so submitted to God and His Word. That transformation, that healing, He'll give to everybody who seeks Him, everybody who comes after Him and submits themselves. That is the healing. And that is ultimately the healing that matters because Lazarus, 
2,000 years ago, Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes back to life. Guess what? Lazarus died again, and he didn't come back. Every person who's ever healed of sickness, uh, I know people personally who have been healed by cancer, uh, who got their life extended and then died uh, from something else. The physical healing is temporary, but the spiritual healing that he gives us, the transformation is eternal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your goodness here today. I thank you for everyone that is here. I ask you today that you would grant all of us spiritual eyes to see who you really are and what you can really do for us that just to have the ability this morning to stand here and hear your word, not my words. I, I include myself in all of us that are able to hear your word and to trust in your word and to know, Lord, that you are with us, that you guide us, that you direct us, that you minister to us, that you give us strength and that you give us the healing, the only healing that truly matters. And that is the healing of our hands, our heart, and our head today that we would be inside and out different people, sanctified, justified, glorified, to live lives unto you that are radically different than the lives from those around us. I pray this morning that you would keep your hand upon us. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would talk to us throughout this week, that it would nudge us in the midst of the chaos of a secular and broken world, that your Holy Spirit would nudge us and be near to us and touch us in a very special way. Lord, keep your hand upon us this week. Help us to be lights and witnesses in this world as we leave here today and we walk into that fog of a secular world that we would have vision, that we would have eyes to see and hearts to know, and that we would walk sensitive to the leading of the power of the Holy Spirit to know that still small voice that talks to us, Lord, today. And we thank you for this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.